Thoth's Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Hello, friends and listeners. Welcome back for a new episode of the Thoth Hermes podcast. This is episode 5 of our season 3 and altogether already our 32nd episode. And counting. Today is August 4, 2019. My name is Rudolf and I am your host. I hope you have enjoyed last week's first Ex Libris episode. From what I can see in the download figures, I assume you did and still do. And if you have not heard the Ex Libris yet and know what it is, just go there, listen to it. I think it's really worth it. And it would be nice if you let me know a bit more yourself. And please let me also know your ideas, your criticism and of course praise if you find it's worth it. And if you don't know where you can give us your feedback, here comes the information. You can send an email to info at thoughthermes.com or you go to our website, which is www.thoughthermes.com that is T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S dot com Leave us a voicemail there or use the contact form to write to me. And of course, you can always use our Twitter or Facebook channels. You can find Hermes for download and streaming on the website, but of course on all major podcast providers as well, such as Apple Podcasts, Android, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, Google and many others. And for you YouTubers, there is also the Totermis YouTube channel called Totermis Podcast. And there the audio of this podcast can be accessed. And yes, of course, on YouTube, you can also let some feedback in a message. But today, I'm also for the first time asking you for a new kind of feedback and support. Thoth Hermes has always been free of access and I want to stay it like that. But as you can imagine, there is cost linked to producing a podcast and somehow I have to cover that. I have so far never asked for your financial support to do that, but at some point I have to start doing it and I hope you will understand. But again, Thoth Hermes will stay free. But I have created a Patreon account and set up some donation levels and goals there. And it would be really nice if you, if you enjoy the Thought Hermit podcast, go there, go on my website and click on the Patreon button and become a patron. Or you go directly on Patreon and ask for the Thought Hermes page there. Giving starts as low as $2 per episode. But if 
enough of you will choose to support this podcast, I can not only cover the running costs, but also do the necessary investments for future improvement, such as YouTube videos, roundtable discussions with several guests, and live call-in shows. I'm not going to tell you all the detail about this here in the show. I don't want to lose time on that, but you will be able to find all detail, as I said, on our website or on the Patreon page. I might have to remind you from time to time, though, here in the podcast, about this possibility to support us. So thanks for listening to this and thank you for your patronage and support. And here comes a message from our sponsor. Anasima Publishing Limited. Quality occult books and contemporary esoterica. Established in 2011, Anathema Publishing aims to provide superior literature in content and form by creating a triune relationship between publisher, author and reader. Anathema Publishing produces refined books for the true bibliophile on topics ranging from Gnosticism, traditional craft, alchemy, hermeticism, witchcraft, to Luciferian philosophy. www.anathemapublishing.com I would also like to point out that since the first Ex Libris episode, we now also have chapters on this podcast that you can access directly in your podcast player if the one you use is set up for chapters. Those chapter markers can be found on the little list that your podcast player will show in that case. This will make your access to your favorite moments in this podcast so much easier. Our guest in today's show is American historian and author Thomas Hatzis. Thomas is a specialist of psychedelia, witchcraft and magic. After a first book called The Witch's Ointment, he has now recently released a kind of prequel to that book and this new one is called Psychedelic Mystery Traditions. And again, also on this show, I really want to play you some music. And of course, the subject of the interview in discussion with Thomas inspired me also for the choice of the music. So today, to honor the decade which saw the rise of the psychedelic movement, the 1960s, our music will be all in the style of that era. The first band that is going to play a piece for us is called Art Tremors. And the song that we're going to hear now is called Blood from a Stone. So, without further ado, let's rock a bit.
that kind of music always makes me feel good and in good spirits. Art Tremors performing their song Blood from the Stone. Quite a pleasure. Now let's turn to Thomas Hatzis. He lives in the American Northwest in Portland, Oregon, and this is where I got in touch with him for our talk. Thomas has a degree in history, and in his book Psychedelic Mystery Traditions, he walks us through a certain number of historical periods and tells us about how psychedelia were used in those times and how they did influence the spiritual and magical world then. But at first, we of course also speak about his personal background and he explains us a certain number of terms where there might often be some confusion about. So, for example, Thomas gives us the difference between psychedelic and entheogens. And then we speak about periods like, for example, the big area, the big era of antique Gnosticism, about the sacred feminine and its relation to psychedelia and much more. As always, after about 30 minutes into the interview, we shall take a break and we'll play some more music. But now, well, come and meet with me, Thomas Hatzis. Here comes the interview. I'm very happy to welcome on the Thoth Hermy podcast for a, a nice talk about the new book that he has issued a few months ago, Thomas Hatzis, who is talking to us from Portland, Oregon, I believe. And the book we are taking as the occasion to talk about um, some other things as well tonight is called Psychedelic Mystery Traditions. Um, good evening or good afternoon from your end in Portland, uh, Tom. Uh, very nice to have you here in, for Thoughts Hermes podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Rudolf. Well, thank you. Um, Tom, um, psychedelic renaissance is something that you that you mentioned several times in your book. We are coming to that a bit later, but meaning that psychedelic and entheogenes um, are again very much, let's say, in the papers and on the table, so to speak. And I think you are also contributing a lot to our understanding and knowledge of uh, why this is and where it all comes from. Um, that will be the topic of our later part of the interview. But at first, before we delve into that and also into your book and books, I must say, um, I would like to know a bit more about the person Tom Hatz is or our audience, you would like to know that, I think. Could you just let us know a bit what brought it all about? How did you come to work into that field? What's your background? And how did you become the Tom Tatsis that you are today in that field? A lot of mistakes. <laughs> um, that, that's really, uh, let's see. So I started off, um, I've always had an interest in witchcraft and magic. That was just something, you know, as, as from growing up as a kid. And then I, uh, I, I took um, mushrooms for the first time at 18 mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I was, uh, I was blown away by the experience and I wanted to know everything I could about it. And so I was going to college uh, the next year. So I just decided to study 
classes that dealt in any kind of history that would, you know, deal with the, the potential of talking about psychedelics. Mm. And um, I wrote my undergraduate uh, thesis, excuse me, on uh, Timothy Leary. And then I wrote my master's thesis on the, um, the psychedelic revolution and kind of the ivory towers um, in, uh, during the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And um, then, uh, let's see, I was going to turn that into a book, but then uh, somebody named Erica Dyke came out with a book that was on a similar topic. And I was like, ah, damn, all right. Well, people are going to think I'm just ripping her off. So mm-hmm. I can't write this book. And then I was going to write one on the uh, the holy mushroom uh, theory. And uh, the more I studied it, the more I realized that there wasn't actually anything there. <laughs> so I was like, all right, well, that's strike two. And um, then when I was in college, I had heard about this thing called a witch's ointment. And I uh, just kind of ran with that. Right. Um, well, you just mentioned the uh, holy mushroom theory. Um, I personally know what it means, but maybe some of our audience don't know about it. Can you just briefly maybe tell our audience what the holy mushroom theory is all about? And what do you think of it, by the way? <laughs> sure. Uh, so the holy mushroom theory, let's start with the, from the beginning. Um, in 1970, a brilliant philologist named John Marco Allegro published a book titled The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, wherein he argued that encoded in New Testament stories about Jesus were really secret references to mushroom use. And, you know, everything with Allegro is just a mushroom and a penis, a mushroom, penis, mushroom, penis, mm-hmm. over and over and over on the pages. And so his work was not well received by other scholars. It, it was received by the popular culture, but not so much by scholars, because uh, for a multitude of reasons, um, Allegro today, for some reason, he's often cast as this this great biblical historian he wasn't uh he was a uh, um, i mean he was a uh, brilliant with uh, uh semitic philology uh mm-hmm. and comparative semitic philology um absolutely but as far as history goes and especially new testament history i mean that dude i mean if you read his book like, he didn't know anything he didn't know the <laughs> okay. about it. so so um Anyway, in, in his book, he, uh, he included a piece, a rather uh, famous piece, known as the Plain Corral Fresco, which is, uh, uh, appears in a chapel in Meringue, France, and um, the chapel of Plain Corral. And um, mm-hmm. Allegro didn't put a lot of stock in this idea that there were mushrooms in Christian art, secretly or otherwise. Uh, he, in fact, wrote six more books after the Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, and he never brought up mushrooms in christian art again which is where the theory is today that's why i'm going you know getting into Mm -hmm, it Uh, mm -hmm. so what happened is you had a lot of people who were fascinated by allegro's ideas but didn't really understand and don't understand how linguistics work how history works how biblical history works so they couldn't make an argument about Jesus being secret, you know, uh, about references, you know, hidden in in, uh, in New Testament stories. So they decided to look at art and point out anything that looks, that has a dome top, you know, like a tree <laughs> uh, sitting on a stem, you know, or really a trunk, mm-hmm. and saying that they're mushrooms. Uh, so that's, that's pretty much what the holy mushroom theory is today. It's the idea that there are mushrooms hidden or not hidden, depending on convenience, 
in various uh, uh, frescoes and uh, manuscript illuminations and um, stained right. glass windows uh, uh, throughout medieval history. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, thank you for uh, elucidating that to the audience. Yeah, thank sorry. You. <laughs> no, no, sure. No, no, that's why we are here. <laughs> um, okay, great. Well, let's come back to the personality, Tom Hatzis. Um, I, I have an additional question to that. Um, are you today, I'm not talking about uh, about uh, mushrooms, I'm talking about your uh, work as a magician or witch or occultist or whatever you would call it. Are you still active in that today or is that something that has passed after college years or are you still into that actively? No, I'm still into that pretty actively. This is my altar behind us. I mean, you can't really mm -hmm. see the whole thing, but yeah, that's, right. uh, yeah, no, I'm still very active with it. Right. Great. So you, you're not talking out of scholarship only, but also of, of practical knowledge of what you're talking about. Yes. Right. Scholarship right. and practice. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great. Um, okay. Well, let's go a bit into your, I'd, I'd rather say two books. I, have the psychedelic mystery traditions here in front of me and i read big parts of it uh, i do not have your first book the, which is ointment um but maybe we should start wherever you choose but um in which ointment uh, topics you have to help me a bit more because i don't know so much about that book um how are those two books related if you could help us putting the two which is ointment and psychedelic mystery traditions a bit in in relation because i think they are very much related aren't they Yes, they are. Um, so The Witch's Ointment, just briefly, is a book about how during the 1400s, some theologians and actually some secular authorities crafted this stereotype of what a witch was. And along with this stereotype was this thing called a witch's ointment. And this was supposedly an ointment made out of the flesh and blood of murdered children. And apparently unbaptized children made the best ointments. So baptize your kids. Um, <laughs> but uh, so what I did in the book um, was kind of show how this theological idea formed and how they probably took this idea of a witch's ointment from real folk traditions, uh, real entheogenic uh, practices of, of regular people. Now, what psychedelic mystery traditions is kind of a prequel to the witch's ointment. It's it's everything that happened before the witch's ointment. So I start in prehistory. I talk about you know ancient uh, psychedelic mysteries and you know how people viewed uh, different kinds of substances like cannabis and opium and uh, mandrake uh, things like that. And I move into the ancient Egyptian and Greco-Roman and Sumerian worlds and. Um, then I have three chapters on how Christians, different kinds of Christians use psychedelics. And mm. then I get into the witches and magicians. Uh, right. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll pick you up maybe on certain topics, which I picked out of the, of the psychological mysteries uh, sure. later on, but uh, that gives us a great overview. Actually, you start that book by talking about the 1970s, where LSD, of course, was developed uh, at first and the first usage was made and you you cite an example there and in a way if i get you right you're saying that the the term psychedelic was only coined at in those years because the word as such didn't exist before if i understood you well in the book um so well in the maybe, not the in the 50s, sorry, yes, yeah. the, in the 50s it was coined, but uh, yes, exactly. Um, but did you, could you maybe give us a, a 
definition of both psychedelic and entheogen and also the difference between the two because i always like to have specialists talk about about definitions because those terms fly all about and everybody's talking about it but ne nobody really knows the exact meaning of and the difference between the two yeah so yeah that's true i mean most people use psychedelic and entheogenic interchangeable and i i do that as well because it's just easier a lot of the time mm -hmm. but my true thoughts on the matter is that psychedelic is like the baseline term it just means mind manifesting and so that mm -hmm. leaves it open manifesting what you know it could be anything so um, it comes from two Greek words, uh, suka and delin. Um, suka, we get psyche from suke, although in that in, in ancient Greek it actually means soul. Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't really know much about you know the brain, you know, neurology yeah. or anything yet. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah. So for me, that's that's kind of uh, like a noun, psychedelic. Words like entheogen are kind of like adjectives. Uh, because entheogen is the use of psychedelic, but with spiritual undertones, like, meaning, you know, as it does to generate divinity from within. So mm -hmm. for me, that's the way I separate them, is that if I'm doing some kind of spiritual work, I might call it entheogenic or some other kind of term. Uh, whereas if I'm just, you know, uh, taking, you know, uh, mushrooms and doing the Terrence McKenna hero dose, you know, putting the blindfold on and just going deep within, you know, that that's just psychedelic you know right and that's why also it's psychedelic music and not entheogen music right <laughs> would you yeah, would you agree on that right yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah although if you have kind of music that's supposed to touch upon your your you know more mystical or spiritual side then i would probably call that entheogenic rock instead of psychedelic rock right so entheogenic is not necessarily caused by the use of substances but can also be triggered by whatever ritual or music or, or oh yeah, yeah. I, I had an entheogenic experience once just because i was really sick mm -hmm. you know and, and it was like right. I, I had a really deep almost breakthrough experience just because mm -hmm. i was really sick this was only about two years ago three years ago right right yeah. interesting yeah yeah okay well Tom, let's go a bit into the chapters of your book, if you don't mind. I, I picked a few out just maybe if if you could expand a bit as much as you want on on those chapters, if that's okay with you. Um, um, I, I didn't pick them uh, just like that. I thought they would give it a good overview on your book. The first is the very first chapter, actually, Generating Divinity, with the subtitle The Theogens, um, because I think it's, in fact, a really important part of the historical psychedelic experience, if you can name it like that, um, that the, crea the creation of deity, the creation of a theological experience has been the reason or maybe the origin of those, of those needs or those wants, uh, why to go into that field. Well, you are the specialist. Can you, can you talk to our audience a bit about that part uh, of your book and what what your meaning is on that one. Sure. Are you referring to Terence McKenna's stoned ape theory? The idea uh, that... Uh, yes, also, yeah. of course. Yes. Okay. So um, let me also say that everything I'm about to say is having not read an article that apparently came out pretty recently that can, uh, that, you know, gives weight to uh, McKenna's stoned ape theory. Mm -hmm. So 
I, everything I'm, I'm saying, I did not read this article, so I could be wrong about everything I'm about to say. I just want to give that okay, warning. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't think that the stoned ape theory has a lot of weight personally. Um, I look, I like most people, I love Terrence McKenna. I love his books. I, I don't necessarily buy that. I think that, and, and I'm not a neurologist, uh, by any stretch of the term, um, or an evolutionary biologist. And by the way, neither was Terrence McKenna. So, um, it just, it seems like there were other things that cause, Evolution. Evolution seems to be more. Excuse me. Can, can you maybe just just uh, with two or three phrases explain what that theory is? Oh, okay, sure, sure. Uh, so the stoned ape theory is Terence McKenna's um, idea that our brains, our human brains, started to grow because we were eating mushrooms, right? And you know, we just it it it, it just gave, gave us all these amazing mental accretions. Mm-hmm. So. That's the theory as it as it stands, right. and that it led to the idea of religion and needing mm-hmm. a way to explain how uh, you know, like this experience. Oh, you know, we're 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 in this totally other world right now, and you know right. that that's the birth of spirituality and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that religion and religious experience is a much bigger thing than psychedelia, personally, and um, there are many very devout religious people out there that have never had any psychedelic at all and to you know almost say that their religious experiences and not that mckenna was saying this but if somebody were to say this that somebody's religious experiences are invalid because it didn't come through a mushroom or ayahuasca or something i i don't agree with that at all Mm -hmm. um people seem to have a natural need for um, uh, these spiritual understandings about themselves. Uh, in my book, I, um, I, I mentioned that I stand in the Edward Tyler school on this. Edward Tyler was a Victorian era anthropologist who believed that the spirit world actually began in the dream realm, that we right. were all, you know, that, that we would have our, our friends, our neighbors, people would die here and there for any number of reasons, right? And sometimes you wouldn't even know why there were diseases, you know, that somebody would catch and all of a sudden they got sick, they would die. And you're like, you know, what just happened? Then all of a sudden you go to sleep one night and that person is in your dream. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, according to Edward Tyler, he figured, well, they might interpret this as some kind of spirit world. And so what I say in the book, and and I I show pretty good evidence for this, is that I think the first kind of psychedelic experiences were taking strong soporifics like opium or mandrake or henbane or even Amanita muscaria mushrooms and falling into the dream state so that you could speak with these other entities, uh, the ancestors, as, as, you know, they might be called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, talking about that very early stage of history, um, do you have a personal explanation or theory um, what made the humans take those take those substances? Was it pure coincidence and then they started experimenting with them? Or do you think it was a more conscious move to apply uh, those substances to their, to their minds, to their brains? What's your theory on that? Uh, so in my book, I offer a whimsical uh, possibility about that 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 second uh, that second possibility, mm-hmm. uh, but I I think it's probably the uh, the first. Um, right. Um, I, I think that it was just it was just trial and error, and Experimenting once they discovered mm-hmm. things, then they experimented with them. Mm-hmm. Um, however, though, you do have 
like ancient stories that I, I think were based on real people. Like uh, in ancient Greece, there, there's the, the wise woman, Hikati, um, right, probably right. called Hecate today. But, um, and it's, uh, it's often said that, you know, she went out and discovered all these different plants. And, you know, maybe that's true because we, we know that people did do that in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. I forget the gentleman's name, but uh, he tested out a whole lot of mushrooms uh, mm. And their uh, toxicity just by eating them. So yeah, you know, yeah. people you know people weren't shy about doing that. Um, but we don't really know uh, how people came sure. across them. Um, uh, my 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 friend and colleague Chris Bennett uh, would argue, and uh, this is probably true. There's there's some evidence for it that you know it could have just been people trying to build bigger fires, and they ended up just coincidentally throwing cannabis bushes on top or opium yeah. bushes or whatever yeah, yeah, or not yeah. opium bushes but opium stalks on top and you know once it filled the air you know and everybody got high maybe that's how they discovered it um yeah, <laughs> yeah sure sure yeah i mean the, the the ancient assyrian word kunabu which we get cannabis is a verb that means to produce smoke so right you know that that that's that could point to that possibility to that possibility absolutely yeah. yes yes okay thank you the next uh, story from your book that I would like to, to ask you about um, is the story of the sacred feminine, where you also develop rather in, in a rather large way on uh, on the topic and how uh, the, the, the um, how the cosmic grail, as you as you kind of call it, would um, define the mystery of the sacred feminine in relation to psychedelic uh, tradition. Can you, I think it's a very interesting part of the book to me. Can you maybe develop a little bit on that? Absolutely. So the the mystery of this. Oh, let me just say real quick before going any further. In the ancient world, mystery. We can't think of the word mystery as like like the way we think of it today, like a whodunit novel with a you know a, a, a yeah. detective walking around with a big magnifying glass. That's not what a mystery is in the ancient world. A mystery in the ancient world is an explanation. It's the elucidation mm -hmm. of why something happens because people wondered about the world all around them. Right. And right. so they, they couldn't explain it. So a mystery is an explanation for why things happen. So just wanted to say well, that. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely important to say. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So the the mystery of the sacred feminine is what I believe. And I'm, I don't know because it, it, it all took place in prehistory. But I hypothesize that there was a time in our ancestors history when they didn't actually know how babies were formed. Mm hmm. You know, they, they were certainly fornicating, but they weren't yet linking the sexual act with procreation. Right. You know, because the first signs of pregnancy take so long after the fact. It's like it's unlike anything else we do. Like once you eat food, your hunger is satisfied. Once you take right. a dump, you know, that that pain in your stomach is gone, you know with sex and, and, and procreation, it's one of the few things that humans do where the, the, um, the result is so far removed from the action. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so they might not have known where babies came from. So this, the, the reverence of the sacred feminine was exactly that. It was this mystery or, or in our terms, mystery of not knowing where babies come from. Mm -hmm. um, and the cosmic grail is my term for essentially the the fe the womb, the female womb. Right. Womb. 
that is the, the, re the, the receiving part, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that that is yeah. constantly full. It is always full. It is always spilling forth, and it's mm -hmm. always replenished. That is the cosmic yeah. rail. And right. so the the first uh, or one of the first um, psychedelic mystery rites that we know about. Uh, that deals with the sacred feminine and this cosmic rail is the, or, or the ancient rites of Eleusis. Now, in the book, I hypothesize that, that the rites of Eleusis actually comes from an earlier rite that was in Africa. And I try to show how once our ancestors fled the African plains, some mm -hmm. went to the west, some went to the east. Those that went to the east founded the mysteries of Inanna in Uruk and then later Sumer. Right. right. Those that went to um, the West uh, hit up, uh, excuse me, founded, you know, uh, uh, the Mycenaean cultures, which mm -hmm. the right to be loose grew out of. Mm -hmm. Now, sorry, I know this is a lot, <laughs> but no, no, that's so, fine. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, the reason I think that the whole idea of procreation and recognition of the male's role in procreation has to do with the original African right has to do with that split from the East and the West. Because when you go to the East, the rites of Inanna, uh, with that she has a the, the, the sacred male counterpart with uh, Dumuzi. So you have Inanna and Dumuzi. You have the sacred masculine yeah. and the sacred feminine. Which we find later in Isis and Osiris again. In, in exactly, yes. Right. And, yeah. right, and that's still further East, mm -hmm. right? Now, but over in Greece, with the rites of Eleusis, you don't have that. Right. You have only sacred mothers. You have Demeter Demeter's and you have Kore. There's mm -hmm. no sacred masculine until mm -hmm. later on Dionysus becomes the sacred masculine. Yeah. But that's the thousands that's of much. years yeah, after. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, much, yeah. much later. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that was because when the rites at Eleusis were originally founded, people still did not know where babies came from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's the mystery of the sacred feminine. Right. right. And how, how do you link that to the, the, the well, the psychedelic uh, substances? So because I, um, in, in the, uh, in psychedelic mystery traditions, well, in, let me get back even further in time. So in the Homeric hymn to Demeter, it's said that, um, that uh, Kore, while she's walking along the plains of Nisa, uh, eats something called a Narcissus. Mm -hmm. Now, Narcissus, we don't know what Narcissus is, but it, I think, along with Karl Ruck, who is a brilliant uh, ancient Greek uh, 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 linguist, um, Narcissus, and it, it also, uh, uh, it, excuse me, I'm getting lost in my thoughts, Narcissus and Narki, which is the mm -hmm. ancient Greek for numbness, derived from the same root. Uh, right. So we both believe that Narcissus was probably opium. Okay. And part of the um, the uh, the mystery at Eleusis also has to do with showing people the cycles of life, that they are part of this infinite cycle, that, that even though they're going to die just like the grains, they're like the grains going to rise again because of the cosmic mm -hmm. rail. It is always spilling forth. It is always replenished. Right. Okay. Very interesting. Thank you. Thank you for the explanation. Yeah, there's, there's way more to it than that. So I hope I did it. Of course. Well, we brief. want people also to read that book, but I think it, you're giving excellent insight in what it all deals with, and 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 I think it it makes us interested to go further with your book. So that's good. Um, I would like to move on to to 
to uh, well first one one more question about the greek period maybe uh, you mentioned uh, the sacred male that entered with dionysus and that's also about the period where the history of psychology um positions the 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 birth of the individual the birth of the realization of individuality so to speak do you think that those two those two facts are related do you think that the that uh, the birth of the individual or at least of the consciousness of the individuality uh, has something to do with the appearance of Dionysus as the sacred male and the the the, the change of the whole female male relationship in ancient Greece um i mean i i don't really know much about that uh so mm -hmm. everything i'm about to say will be very ignorant but i don't mm -hmm. personally believe so i think that people knew about individuality way before that because you had shamans mm -hmm. way before that and shamans right. clearly and medicine uh uh workers and healers clearly stood out from other people so sure. you know yeah. i i think that that's again one of those things that just evolved you know way yeah. long ago i mean I, my okay. cat has a sense of individuality you know? right Right, right. <laughs> I I agree with you. I just uh, wanted to mention that theory, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Sure. That's no, um, interesting. It's very interesting. Absolutely. I'm coming back to shamanism a bit later, if if I may. Um, I would like now to move on into the time of Gnosticism and primitive Christianity. Sure. And I think that's also a very fascinating time because somehow it's also very close to many people nowadays, especially those who have a relationship to one of the Christian churches. And yeah, well, psychedelics, the apocalyptic movement of the time, and also the Gnosticism and its relation to psych the psychedelic tradition. Um, tell us a bit about that. Okay, so in when Christianity first arrived on the scene, um, there were different groups of Neoplatonists who took Christianity and mixed it with Neoplatonist ideas. I'll just say that Neoplatonism is the idea that there are a hierarchy of beings in the universe. Um, so Gnostics seem to have just taken ideas about Jesus and mixed it in with these Neoplatonist ideas. They thought that Jesus wasn't actually a flesh and blood person, but was a, um, a uh, um, like just kind of like an apparition or almost a ghost. He was an appearance. An, an idea? Not an idea, but like a, almost like a, like a like a ghost kind mm -hmm, of material. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, the 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 philosophy, the, the religious philosophy in, in the ancient world is called docetism from the Greek word dakeo, which means to seem or to appear. They mm -hmm. thought that Jesus only seemed to be real, but that he was really just made of some kind of cosmic stuff, you know, not material, right. you know, uh, uh, ingredients, we'll say. Right. So Gnostics had several different ways that they would use um, their their psychoactive potions. Um, one of those ways was what I call mystheogenic, which is the idea of bringing somebody into a mystery religion uh, by giving them an epiphany with a psychedelic. Mm -hmm. So I think that guys like Simon Magus 
or whoever, you know, Simon Magus was based off of. Um, I think that guys like him were doing things like that. He was dazzling people with his potions and they were saying, oh, you're, you know, you, you have these supernatural powers. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there were some pretty uh, more complicated um, Gnostic rituals. Like I get into, I write about in the book, The Mystery of the Light Maiden. Um, this is a little complicated, so I'll, I'll try to, you know, condense it as best I can. Sure. I mentioned a moment ago that Gnostics believed in a hierarchy of beings. Now, th- these, this hierarchy all started with one supreme being that is so far removed from anything we can ever know. Humans cannot know this being any more than a rock can know what um, a pen is. Mm-hmm. It just, it's just impossible. So this being was all that there was. And because this being was technically living, living as a concept, as what was called an aeon, emerged out of the supreme being. The supreme being could also think. So thought emerged out of the supreme being. Uh, This being was also wise. So wisdom and so forth, they all came out. Now, wisdom, one of the supreme beings called Sophia in Greek, she kind of messed up and got herself kicked out of what was called the Pleroma. The Pleroma was where all these, this heavenly hierarchy lived. We we today would call it heaven. They called it the Pleroma. So she got kicked out of the Pleroma because she had unnatural intercourse with herself. So she had sex with herself. Mm -hmm. This unnatural intercourse resulted in this deformed being called Yaldabaoth. Yaldabaoth then created the material world. So according to Gnostic theology, when the ancient Jews were talking and the ancient Christians were talking about Yahweh, they were really, they weren't talking about the supreme creator. They were talking about this deformed bastard offspring. That's why the the demiurge is that. Yeah, the demiurge, exactly. The demiurge, yeah, Yahweh and Mm -hmm. Yaldabaoth sounds like Yahweh, Lord of the Sabbath. Right. Anyway, in order to get uh, uh, Sophia back into the Peroma, there was this Gnostic ritual which included having seven women and seven men engage in this cosmic orgy. Mm-hmm. In doing so, the seven women became Sophia's and the seven men became cosmic Christ's, and this would allow Sophia back into the loving arms of the cosmic Christ, waiting for her in the Pleroma. Now, where psychedelics play a role into this is that um, in some cases, uh, we have, uh, I believe there's a poem called The Ode to Sophia, where they talk about some of the incenses, and one of those incenses is called the Indian Leaf which has inferences to cannabis, as again, my, my friend and colleague, Chris Bennett has pointed out. And mm-hmm. he gives a very good reason for that in his book, Cannabis and the Soma Solution. Like he gets into it way deeper than I do. I hope you are learning just as much as myself while listening to Thomas. He really knows an awful lot about that subject. So I promised you some more music, didn't I? And here we go. Salt Lake Seagull is what we are going to hear, performed by Chris Schartz. Enjoy.
Salt Lake Seagull by Chris Schartz. And now let's return to the interview with Thomas Hatzis. In this second part, we continue our walk through the periods of history. And Thomas also tells us more about ethnobiology and what it can teach us about psychedelics from the old ages. Thomas also talks about his third book that he has written called Microdosing Magic and which is a kind of psychedelic spellbook. Finally, he will give us a little preview on his upcoming projects. The interview will be immediately followed by our third piece of music, Felix Salt, performing Endless. Welcome back. Thomas Hatzis. I'd like to ask you some 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 question, uh, which is more a general question about those whole that whole matter here. We're talking about mushrooms and cannabis and other substances. Um, do you have any experience or knowledge in, well, archaeological biology? Probably you would have to call that. Um, uh, and is it possible? Uh, and Do you do that or do you know people who are doing it um, to, to research what plants, what substances we know about or we may not know about might have existed at the time or if they were those plants that we are aware of today and how, for example, would you be able to say cannabis in the case we were just mentioning and sure. mushrooms in another case? How, how, how does biology and those theories Uh, sure. work together? Uh, it's a lot of detective work. So mm. I'll give you just uh, one for example. Um, in the second century of the common era, there was a guy named Pausanias. Mm -hmm. And he was a, uh, a travel, uh, he was uh, writing a travelogue about Greece. And he comes across some worshippers of Hera, and they're offering up what he calls a sterian to the goddess Hera. Mm -hmm. And we don't He doesn't ever tell us what a sterion is. But if you look in Galen's um, On Medical Terminology, he tells us that a sterion is the Greek word for cannabis. Mm -hmm. So now we know that these worshippers of Hera were definitely using cannabis because we have a textual reference to it. Now, other times, um, cannabis is actually interesting, let me just say, because it has... In, in a lot of cases, it retains its root, its canna root. So it, it, a lot of the times, you know when you're dealing with it. Uh, also, mandrake, uh, except in Josephus where it's called baras, but mandrake is also called like mandragora in different, or mandra agora in different mm -hmm. languages. Um, so uh, sometimes you know. Now, other times, getting to some things that might have actually gone extinct, Plutarch... Uh, references or mentions that worshippers of Dionysus would utilize some kind of ivy that, based on his descriptions of it, was clearly causing some kind of entheogenic reaction mm -hmm. in these Dionysian worshippers. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't today know any kind of ivy that, that will cause, you know, that has any kind of entheogenic effect. So, Maybe he's talking about an ivy that went extinct, that, that actually was some kind of psychedelic ivy. Or maybe right. ivy is just some cover for any number of things, the way we call cannabis weed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't sure. know. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, yeah. 
Uh, what else? As far as that is concerned. Um, also, frankincense. We today, mm-hmm. our frankincense, I mean, people in church go, they smell frankincense all the time. It doesn't do anything. But yeah. if you read some ancient sources, um, uh, Virgil among them, uh, Dioscorus, Pliny, they all talk about using frankincense to, you know, like lose your mind. You know, they talk about it yeah. making people go crazy, you know, especially if yeah. given to spiritual exaltation. So, yeah. But uh, but uh, taking frankincense, I mean, you and I are both active in, in that scene, and I'm sure many of the audience are as well. So I think, uh, depending on the mixture, there are different mixtures of frankincense of different of different resins which you use to create them um, that do have certain, maybe not psychedelic, but at least psychoactive uh, oh, yeah. um, uh, reactions cause yeah. them. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure they exist. I mean, all, and uh, yeah. we all experience that, don't we? Yeah. There, there's also stuff like um, like where we don't know what they're talking about, but we know there was something there. Like Pliny talks about something called the sagel that Persian uh, magicians use to enter a divine trance. We have no idea what to say. Like, it could be right. anything. Right. Do Do you know the name of uh, Christian Rech? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, uh, he is a European uh, a European researcher in the field of biology of psych- uh, psychoactive plants. That's why I was using the term psychoactive as opposed to psychedelic. Yeah. I don't know if you make that distinction or or if 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 you would say it's the same, um, but. When you, he has written a book, Encyclopedia. He has written many books, but yes. his main work is Encyclopedia of Psychoactive Plants in German. And it's 950 pages on, yeah, in, a, in a huge volume, heavy book. I have it here on my shelf. And it's amazing all the kinds of plants you have never even heard about. So I'm sure what you're calling detective work, there is still lots of things to research oh, yeah. when you go back in history, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm right. actually. Christian and I are both speaking at our breaking convention at a uh, Greenwich uh, University oh. uh, next month. So I'm hoping to, you know, say hello and introduce myself. Ah, uh, great, great. I'm absolutely. a big fan of his stuff. So, yeah, he's an interesting man. Absolutely. Great. Well, let's move on to another chapter of your book. Um, I would like you to hear you a little bit uh, talking about the Renaissance period. I'm not talking about the very last chapter, which you call the psychedelic Renaissance of today. We're coming to that towards the end. But um, no, before in medieval and Renaissance ceremonial magic and the use of psychedelia in 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 that field, you call it one constant story, that chapter. Yeah. So um, ceremonial magic, something that is often said to be kind of a almost a replacement to to psychedelic or psychoactive substances because by ritual you create the effect of uh, of raising your consciousness without the use of substances uh, and so I, I would like to to hear first if you would agree on that 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 ritual and ceremony can partly replace the substance but what is the relation that you describe in that book between the use of psychedelia within ceremonial magic? Sure. So that idea that um, the, you know, the ceremonial aspects and the ritual aspects replaced the use of the entheogen, if I'm not mistaken, that was uh, Robert Gordon Wasson was the first person to come up with, with that uh, when he was right, trying to yeah. defend mm-hmm. the Amanita muscaria as Soma. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I don't necessarily believe that because you have too many instances of people like very um, skilled magicians still using psychoactives um, while, you know, even though they, they have, um, you know, perfected the ritual aspect of it. You know, and again, uh, to bring up my, my friend and colleague, Chris Bennett, his book, Libra 420, gets into that in a way that mine doesn't at all. Um, mm-hmm. Excuse me. I, I get into it a little bit. But, uh, yeah, it's um, for some people, maybe. But, I mean, I've also heard some people say that, like, you know, if you meditate long enough, you can reach the same levels that you could reach with mushrooms or LSD. I don't buy that at all, personally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just don't, um, you know, your, your brain is doing very different things when you're meditating than, you know, when you take mushrooms. Um, mm-hmm. so I'm not sure why anybody would even think that the same thing would happen, but anyway, right. um, so yeah, I don't, um, with ceremonial magic and like with all magic in, in throughout history and especially in the Ren- Renaissance, it's, it's pretty chaotic. You have people just doing what really works for them. And if that includes a psychoactive, then somebody's going to include it, you know, and if mm-hmm. it doesn't, then they're not going to. Right. Right. Um, any examples or of usage in? in, in sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so you have guys like uh, Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa von Nettesheim, who mm-hmm. um, he would talk about using uh, opium and mandrake and henbane, uh, which he called spirit herbs, because he said that when you would let, you know, light them on fire and inhale them, that spirits would appear in the air. So right. there's right. one example. Uh, you also had um, Zosimos the alchemist who um, mentions that um, he's castigating these magicians. He says that they're using uh, cannabis and also Darnell, which is a, a rye fungus, kind of like ergot. He says that they're using it in their magic. Right, right. What about John D.? John D., I don't know much about what he was doing. I didn't get too deep into him. Uh, but again, right. my buddy Chris does in uh, Libra 420. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has okay. a whole chapter, I think, dedicated to John D. Yeah, I think it's more about his his alter ego, not himself, that, but his alter ego who did this crying, actually, which yeah. there were those stories that I read about, of course, about entheogen substances uh, being used, etc., etc. Right. Yeah. You, you mentioned something earlier on, um, and I said I would come back to it now is the moment. And because, um, please don't take it as a as a criticism, but as a as a question, real an interested question. Um, the big absent for me in those chapters, but there's certainly good reason for for that. At least, it's not part of a chapter. Um, it's people like Castaneda and shamanism, shamanism in general, so ancient shamanism as well as, well, let's call it today's uh, um, more modern use of shamanism. And Castaneda, who has in a certain way been in his own right, you think about him whatever you want, but in his own right, he has created a a big movement towards mushrooms, etc. So... What's the reason that you didn't go into that, or are you preparing another book on that, or whatever, whatever? What's sure. your what's your point there? Uh, because mostly th- this book really just wanted to deal and only deals with psychedelia in the Western traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I noticed, and one of the reasons I wrote the book, was that I mean, when you go to any bookstore, or any you know psychedelic or head shop, and that that sells books, 
they all have stuff on Castaneda. They have stuff on peyote and the Mesoamerican usage and ayahuasca and, of course, 5-MeO-DMT and toad Mm -hmm. medicines. And they don't really have anything at all about what the ancient Egyptians were doing and what the ancient Romans were doing and what ancient Christians were doing. So um, I just I figured there's there's more than enough. Uh, on okay. Castaneda and on and in that area, then and just not enough at all in, in uh, you know the Western tradition. So I wanted to focus mm-hmm. on that. Okay, well, good explanation. I'm I, I'm interested to hear you because not everybody does the same distinction that you would not count. I agree with it actually, but that you would not count shamanism into the Western tradition um, because well, it has been absorbed so much by some of the Western. Um, well occultists let's put it that way that that it's by many seen as part of it but i mean that's another discussion but it's it's just interesting yeah well i would say that um the wise women that i write about in the witches ointment i would say that they were shamans in Mm -hmm. in a in the truest sense of the term if if we'll define if which is i believe the definition of a shaman is somebody that's a specialist in ecstasy and in ecstatic states and being able to navigate the other world so that they can bring information from the other world to help their community mm-hmm. right through prophecy mm-hmm. or healing or whatever absolutely that's what these women were doing so if that's the definition of a shaman these wise women they were not witches they were shamans yeah absolutely and i also personally believe that in within the whole Greek tradition and of course the Celtic tradition in Europe and so the of course shamanism plays also an important role in the in the Western tradition in general. Absolutely. For example, I don't the mistletoe, for example, the famous mistletoe is also by certain people seen as a as a psychoactive plant in that field. Would you would you do you have experience with that? Do we have, do uh, we have mistletoe? research from that? Yeah. Uh, I I haven't. I think uh, Carl Ruck. Um, are you referring to Ruck and in, uh, in Hidden World? I believe he talks about that. Well, I'm not referring to anybody in particular, but oh, okay. it's just a general. It's just a general sure. thought that appears here and there in, in Celtic tradition. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I don't know much about it. Right. Right. Yeah, now, now let's come. Let's come to your last chapter of the book, and maybe we can talk a bit more about that because I, th- of course. Uh, this book is extremely interesting on the historical part, but you also draw the whole experience and the conclusions that you make from from the historical part of the book or from the big historical part of the book into what you call the psychedelic renaissance of today. And I would be interested to hear when today in those terms would start for you. Is it the 1950s, 70s or later? And take it from there and maybe that you that you tell us a bit more what you how do you see today's psychedelic renaissance and also talk a bit about the future what you think is is going to happen in the next 20 or 50 years about it sure um well i would say that the psychedelic renaissance uh properly began in the 1950s or so Uh, that's when, you know, people really started to like really care about studying these substances and McKenna and so on. Yeah. Yeah. What's that? So Leary McKenna and those people. uh, Yeah. uh, Well, they were a bit later, like McKenna was was more the seventies and eighties. He was this time. Leary was the sixties. And, um, yeah, what's important this time is that we look back and not make the same mistakes that led to the downfall 
um, you know, in the uh, this late 60s, early 1970s, mm -hmm. uh, so that we could continue to study these medicines. Would uh, you? Would you? Would you? What would you think are the? What were the the, the mistakes that were made at the time? So, um, I great question. Um, a lot of the mistakes were actually made by Timothy Leary. I, I had mentioned uh, earlier that I wrote my undergraduate thesis on him, and mm -hmm. I actually learned a lot about him. And uh, he was quite reckless and irresponsible with these medicines. And um, he certainly, you know, used his position of power to um, force women into compromised positions. Mm -hmm. um, and... You know things like that, and I, I mean, he lied a lot on on um, on his studies. Like when he, when he would do, uh, like he did uh, the the Marsh the the Marsh Chapel study to um, measure mystical experiences with psilocybin, and he to mm -hmm. totally fabricated a lot of the stuff to make things look better than they actually were. Mm -hmm. uh, the same thing with the Concord Prison Experiment. Um, he the, the idea was that they were going to lower the recidivism rate. Recidivism for any listener that doesn't yeah. know the likelihood that a prisoner returns to prison after release. Right. So the idea was they were going to give these prisoners psilocybin, release them, and you know they would be they would have been changed, and you know they they wouldn't go back to prison. Mm -hmm. And Leary decided he wasn't going to record any of the guys that returned uh, to prison. It didn't affect the recidivism rate at all, but Leary okay. reported that it did. So it was just it was dishonest um, things like that that actually mm -hmm. that, that brought the downfall. Just not respecting the medicines. Mm -hmm. So you, you believe that it was that non-academic, but wanted to be academic. It was not academic because it wasn't true. Approach to it that that brought the downfall, and not an, an abuse type of, of of substances themselves among among larger communities, but rather in the in the academic field that these problems occurred. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And once mm -hmm. once it it once the academic side of it got ruined, it ruined it for everybody because then you have right. the underground laboratories springing up, and their their product is not as you know pure as it could have been. Mm -hmm. You know, so then uh, then you have the social issues that that come up. Sure, but I interrupted you earlier. I'm sorry about that. No, um, so you said uh, we shouldn't make those same errors again, and yeah. well. Can you continue on that? Well, what would yeah. what would be the future of that? So the future of that is um, making sure that facilitators are trained and know what they're doing, and are not abusing people coming to them for help. Um, also, not overstating, you know, the 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 transformative power of psychedelics. Yes, they absolutely do have transformative power. But if you like have a really bad habit and you think that you just, oh, I'm going to take a high dose of LSD and I'm not going to have that habit again, that's not true either. I mean, maybe mm -hmm. one in a hundred, that's true, but it's usually not mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. So in, in America, uh, we just had um, decriminalization of psilocybin in Denver, Colorado, and just yeah. had all plant medicines decriminalized in Oakland, California. Mm -hmm. um, so, and here in, in, uh, Portland, Oregon, we're also working to decriminalize psilocybin for, uh, in 2020. Yeah. We have a whole movement of that in, over here in Europe, in some countries as well, which. Oh yeah. Which, which one? 
Uh, well, the Netherlands, of course, uh, I, I believe Denmark, but there are even first steps in Germany going on. Well, I'm really saying very at low level first steps, right? But sure. it's first steps. definitely something that's started to move, right? Yeah. So I think that's that's a good that's a good point there, right? Yeah. Um, and if I could say one last thing, one thing we have sure. to make sure we do is is like just ensure that the the spread of psychedelic education outpaces the spread of psychedelics because we don't want to like people irresponsibly taking these things that's another thing that wasn't all just leery it was also Mm -hmm. people taking the these medicines not in sacred context not in uh you know respectable context and you know that's that's going to be a problem as well so we got to really watch that yeah, I don't know if you as a historian can make any judgment on this, but do you have the impression that in earlier times, up to whenever, up to you to say, um, the use of those substances was more controlled, so to speak, so it was more done in a non-harmful way than it was maybe in the 50s, 60s, 70s or 80s, um, up to today, partly. Um, Do you think something has changed there or do we just not know about the past? And if something has changed, do you have an idea what caused that change? Sure. Um, I would actually say it's the reverse. I mean, people use psychedelics to harm each other far more in the ancient world than anybody mm-hmm. does today. I mean, yeah, you have some scumbags that, that you know, will, will dose somebody today. But I mean, no, it wasn't. I mean, you, you have different ways people used these kinds of plants in the ancient world. You had the way, you know, when they were revered, you know, inside a sacred context, right? Uh, or you have them used in magic when somebody's putting a hex on another person. We literally have cases of people, you know, giving somebody a psychedelic to drive them crazy. I mean, that happened. That People did that a lot uh, right. in the world. So another thing we have to also kind of, um, you know, recognize about the past is that they didn't classify the substance the way we classify the substance. They classified the act. So you could take mm-hmm. mushrooms in a sacred context and that's totally legal. But if you right. then use those same mushrooms to put a hex on somebody, that's totally illegal. It's not the mushrooms that's illegal. It's what you do with them. Right. Which, which makes sense in a way. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I would say that people were people were just as a general historical rule. I'd like to say people are far nicer to each other today than they ever were in history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. mm-hmm. they were not the good old days they were the <laughs> horrible old days people yeah. are nicer they're more courteous they're friendlier yeah. today they're more willing to help they're more generous than than people ever were in the past well that that's a good point thank you for saying that yeah yeah i mean or look at the aztecs i mean you you had their priests were, were eating peyote and mm-hmm. then they were sacrificing you know ripping the still beating hearts out of their slaves, you know, just so the sun would rise the next day. Now, I don't know a single psychonaut. I haven't met anybody who has ripped the still beating heart out of anyone. (laughs) I I think we're doing far better today. And I think that we should give ourselves a little bit of credit for that. Right, right. Well said. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, 
We mentioned, or you mentioned at the very beginning of this interview, you mentioned your third book, and now it's it's the moment I I would like to ask you about it, which is the you call it a psychedelic spell book, and it's called Microdosing Magic, right? Yeah. So, um, well, do tell us more about that book, please. Sure. Um, so, Microdosing Magic, a psychedelic spell book, is just a short practical guide for getting the most out of your dose. Is Even it a grimoire, or what, what, what would you call it? What's that? Is it a grimoire? Or, yeah, exactly. or what? yeah, yeah, it's like a grimoire. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And it's just a way to, like, um, yeah, get the most out of psychedelic use. Even though the title is Microdosing Magic, I mean, I, I've i done, like, when I developed a lot of these spells, I was using macrodoses. So, you know, you mm -hmm. can use macrodoses, you can use, you know, hero doses, although in some spells it might be a little dangerous. But, uh, yeah. yeah, and it's just different things that you can do um, so that you're, you're, you're getting everything you can from the experience. Um, so microdosing, just as a, you know, uh, let's start there, uh, really does help with creativity and it helps with, uh, as an antidepressant. Mm. So what I do in the book is show you ways to actually get even more creative juice and, you know, more antidepressant mileage out of your dosing, you know, beyond right. taking it. Right. So it's a, it's a, how to do it book in fact, right? Yeah, it's uh, so yeah. the thing with my magical system, you're always casting spells on yourself only. You're never casting spells on anybody else. There's no hexing. Mm -hmm. It's always just on you. And so right. that's the book. It's just filled with spells to cast on yourself um, to just make get the most out of your life, really. Right. Mm. Interesting. From your personal experience, Tom, um, you're working as a historian. Uh, in the academic field, um, but you're working on topics that are rather, well, let's put it that within the academic world, rather on the edge, I would think. Um, so you are practicing uh, magic, you're pre you, but and you're talking about, about uh, psychedelic substances in your work, in your research. How does the academic world uh, react to that? Is it already a field that is academically accepted nowadays or is it something you still have to fight for every day or how do you how are you being perceived by your by your peers sure so like like all academic topics it's just it's always an upward battle mm -hmm. um and you're, you're always going to have your critics and you're going to have your supporters and i have my critics and i have my supporters uh i recently just finished an article for the journal of psychedelic studies uh, where i i go over some of the criticism uh of um, medieval psychedelic use and mm -hmm. i mean really the 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 criticisms about um, you know, the skeptics about medieval psychedelic use, like they really don't have any good arguments. Uh, it's a lot of smoke and mirrors and sleight of hand. And what I do in this article is actually show that, that it's yeah. their points are just really they're not they're not good. Uh, a lot of the times they're not familiar with the sources. So like um, I had uh, one person, you know, really, you know, you know, give me a hammering uh, on, on my book, The Witch's Ointment. And I mean, but in order to do that, he had to actually make up quotes from me. Like he actually right. like, made up a quote from my book. I mean, in the journal that published his review actually ended up apologizing to me about it because they're like, oh, my God, right. like, you know, so. But, but are they attacking you because of the content, because it's the subject you're talking about or because of your theories 
about the subject? I, you know, that's a great question. I don't know. I think they're attacking more of the content. Like it doesn't feel personal to me at all. Mm -hmm. No, no, not personal, but you're working on a subject that is not serious. I mean, I'm not meaning that, but that's what I would put into their mouth, you know? Sure. I mean, right. you know, it, what it comes down to is they're just wrong, so I don't really care. Right. Okay. You know, good, it, good point. It's whole thing, like, the, you know, the lion doesn't pay attention when the dog barks. No, you're right. You're yeah. absolutely so, right. Uh, yeah. Again, I would just say that in, in the forthcoming Journal of Psychedelic Studies, I am going to have an article. You know, there is an article in there that about this. And I just say to your listeners, check it out, read it for yourself, and you tell me whether the skeptics you know, have a better or making good points or not. Yeah, yeah, very, very nice. Good, good, good. Um, well, you were just mentioning it yourself, the future. Um, before we wrap up, because we're coming, unfortunately, already to the end of this hour, um, could you maybe uh, uh, tell us what's what's coming up for you? If there are new books somewhere out there that you sure. would like to talk about, articles, conferences, whatever Absolutely. you would like to, to share with us. Yeah. Um, so actually quite a bit of things are coming up. Um, okay. I just finished recording the audiobook for Psychedelic Mystery Tradition. So okay. if any of your listeners are interested in picking it up on audiobook, that should be available, mm -hmm. I think, in August. Mm -hmm. So we have that. Uh, next weekend, uh, I'm throwing the Guy in Mind Psychedelic Conference uh, with my partner, Eden. Um, it's mm -hmm. our first big conference. Uh, we have a fantastic lineup here in uh, Portland, Oregon. Great. Um, then next month, I'm going to be at Breaking Convention. I'm going to be debating Jerry Brown, the author of the Psychedelic Gospels, on the Holy Mushroom Theory. And I'll also be speaking at Breaking Convention, you know, doing my own thing as well. Is that where you meet Christian Fratch? Yes, hopefully. I yeah, hope yeah, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I have three books um, in the works right now. Um, one is That's called good. Wonder Child, which is based off my original um, master's thesis about LSD and, and the uh, academic revolution of the 1950s. Mm -hmm. That's one. Uh, the second one is on the holy mushroom and why I don't buy into it, but it's going right. to be a complete book about why it just doesn't work in history. Mm -hmm. And the third I'm writing with my partner, Eden, is called uh, Psychedelic Witch, Deeper Mysteries of Entheogenic Occultism, which is a follow-up to Microdosing Magic. We're going to get really, okay. really, really witchy with it. Like, Microdosing Magic, we wrote as a general introduction for people that are new to both magic and psychedelics. Mm -hmm. uh, Psychedelic Witch, the book, is going to be for, you know, practitioners who want the real juicy stuff. Right. Great. Great. Well, sounds all very exciting and interesting. Yeah. Um, well, Thank you, Tom. It was really nice to have you uh, with us for today. And thank you for your time and, and, and sharing all of that knowledge and interesting things with us. Um, any final word for our audience? Yeah, um, please check out my website, psychedelicwitch.com. Hit me up on Instagram, at witchydelic. That's W-I-T-C-H-Y-D-E-L-I-C. Um, I've got a bunch of videos also on facebook.com slash the psychedelic witch. Mm -hmm. And uh, I hope to hear from you. Drop me a line, say hi, yell at me, curse at me, whatever. Yes, so great. Well, yes, interaction is very important. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you for your Thank time you. and bless you. And uh, well, maybe speak another time. Thank you. I'd love to. Guy Dita. Thank, Thank you.
by Felix Salt. As you could probably find out in the interview, I'm not a specialist in psychedelia myself. And already when I read Thomas' book, I really found out many new things for myself. And with that interview, he added for me again a lot of insight and fascinating detail. And I really do hope it was the same for you. Thank you, Thomas. And this brings us now to the end of today's episode. Thank you very much for listening and for being such loyal customers. And as I said in the beginning, it would really be nice if you go to the Patreon page or to the Thought Hermit website to click on that button and help us cover the cost of the podcast with your donation. Thanks for considering it. Our next episode will be number six in this season three, that will mean we will already be half through season three. Time is really flying. I'm very much looking forward in that episode to present to you Shani Oates, whose work I really think to be very special. We will, of course, be talking about The Order of Tubal Cain as well, but also about her latest writings and future plans. My guest for episode seven is not yet fixed, so... Have a look on our website from time to time during the next few days and you will find out very soon, I'm sure. For today, I would like to thank you again for being with me. I'm very much looking forward to have you back on the Doth Hermes podcast next time and for many more times in the future. Thanks for listening. Take care. 
Stay tuned. Hear you soon.